And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. We're going to have our USC expert Antonio Morales on here in a little bit, partially to talk about how USC is looking in the spring, but also because he went to San Diego State. And guess what? Big, big moment for San Diego State over the weekend. And speaking of Trader Joe's, our wonderful sponsor, Bruce, have you, if you're watching basketball, right, and you're looking for a snack, have you had the blue corn tortilla chips at Trader Joe's? Stu, I actually, uh, I don't think I ever had them until about a week ago, and my wife had ended up buying them, and I got to admit, never mind basketball, it was like just, I kept on eating them, they were really, really good, so next time you're at Trader Joe's, definitely get them, they are, they're like a great snack, it's like one of like, add it to the list of all the stuff you, you get there, that's like, can't get this anyplace else, and it's really good. Yeah, I, I, I've been watching obviously a lot of basketball over the last couple of weeks. I feel so. like it's one of the few things too you and I have in common is we have very similar tastes that line up. But when it comes to when I when we were talking about that offline, I was like, oh, he likes them too. It's we usually don't are on not on the same page. Well, we're definitely never on the same page of music and pop culture, but you know we do enjoy sports and a lot of the same Trader Joe's products, so that's good. Um, let's get to our guest the esteemed USC writer, Antonio Morales. We are pleased to be joined now by the athletics expert on all things USC, all things Southern California recruiting, and San Diego State superfan, Antonio Morales. It is the Monday morning after the Aztecs advanced to their first ever Final Four. How are we doing today, Antonio? Uh, it's a good day uh, in Southern California, uh, San Diego State first Final Four. Uh, I think it's uh, UCLA has only been to one Final Four in the past uh, 15 years or so. And uh, USC hasn't been to one, so San Diego State uh, ma- making their moves as uh, things start to shift out here. It just real, I just realized that like two of uh, two of the three of us have Final Four teams as our as our alma maters. Um, and I almost went to FAU, so that was I never would have saw that coming. Um, are you, yeah, you know what? I forgot to be honest, Bruce. I didn't even, I didn't even think about that. How are you, are you pretty fired up too? Uh, I'm okay with it. Um, I had a, one funny moment at home. I shouldn't say this too loud because somebody in the house will hear this, but like at one point watching the FAU game, I commented to my wife, I said, uh, Vlad Golding looks like a really tall Brady Quinn. And it was like, I got such scorn. It was like, I could say something about somebody else, but it was like, you're just like no, he doesn't. It was like kind of like <laughs> so dismissive of that. Um, but it, yeah, it was, it, it, 
it's been a fun weekend of you know basketball is fun weekend like honestly i've got sucked into iowa women's basketball to watch the caitlin clark show and um you know just to, to come back to antonio's point like for you i'm curious like is this very surreal to see your alma mater not only in discussions or you know maybe moving on out of the group of five world and now also as a final four team like they're obviously Kawhi leonard there's been some great players michael cage i know he's way before your time certainly tony gwynn um as a basketball baseball guy but how does it feel to, to see your alma mater at this level uh it's definitely surreal just because 20 years ago i remember when steve fisher made his first ncaa tournament and they got blown out and it took them about 10 years to to win a tournament game it was the Kawhi team and they went to the sweet 16 that year and um, fell short to yukon and then um Obviously, about another 10 years go by, and you have the 2020 team that was 26 to no, and they probably would have been a one or a two seed, and they probably would have made a run to the lead eight or something. And I thought that was San Diego State's best team, and then COVID <laughs> canceled the tournament. I feel like that really hurt SDSU and Dayton this year. Uh, so just good to see them in the Final Four and make that run. Um, they're going to have a lot of week, like the whole week in, in, a, in the spotlight this year, and it just – I think the surreal things is how people talk about SDSU now when you read stories. They're like, oh, good academic school. And, um, you know, they're poised to go to the Pac-12 was because when I uh, – my first year was 2010, but, you know, growing up in San Diego, like good academic school and stuff like that like wasn't the rep that San Diego State had. It's like, oh, this is a party school and um, a safety school and stuff like that. You heard that a lot, and now – uh, I think the basketball programs helped kind of change the reputation of the schools, like how much they've won and kind of how successful they've been over the past decade or so. Well, you know, with the Pac-12 discussion, obviously football drives realignment and everybody, you know, will say, oh, they're, you know, they're, they're a decent football program, right? They had Donnell Pumphrey, they had Rashad Penny. They've never had that like breakthrough, um, you know, season like Tulane had last mm -hmm. year, but they're a good football program. And, it, and basketball never really came up. And I feel like this is a good reminder to people that, like, they've had a heck of a basketball program for 10, 12 years now. Like you said, the, going back to Kawhi Leonard. And I know they became kind of famous for their student section. Um, it's an, it's a, I mean, it just couldn't, this couldn't come at a better time. Uh, I don't know that, you know, based on our reporting, everybody just assumes it's a done deal. I don't know mm -hmm. that the Pac 12 presidents had necessarily reached a universal agreement that they even want to expand much less San Diego state. But if they do that, they're the first call. And I feel like now they would, they have to like, if you pass on a program that just went to the final four and has a good football program and is in the part of the country that of the schools that just left you're doing back. Well, like it's gotta happen. Yeah. I think my worries is San Diego state alum was, <laughs> I thought, okay, this seems like it's going to be automatic and this is going to happen. <laughs> and then you, like you said, you don't know what to believe in realignment rumors. You're like, is the Pac-12 going to like stick together long enough for like San Diego State to even like go in there if the TV deal isn't there? Um, so, but I think they're obviously um, in a good spot now. And I think bas uh, basketball would compete really well. I think it would take football some time uh, – the football programs had success against the Pac-12 
uh, school. They beat Utah the year they won the, the Pac-12 in 2021. And uh, they've beaten some Pac-12 teams, but I think it would take them longer to compete than you know, the basketball program. I think it's interesting because if you look at what San Diego State's been, certainly Rocky Long, but even you know Brady Hoke in the last few years. I mean, I uh, my crew did the did the Mountain West title game where they got hit by COVID really hard in that week when they got blown out by Utah State. But that was still a team that won twelve games. Mm-hmm. Just looking at, it, I don't know if people realize because unless you're on the West Coast and the things you said where they did really well. You know, both I feel like them and BYU have acquitted themselves well against against um, the Pac-12 at times. But if you look at it, they've won at least 10 games five times in the last eight years. And one of the one of those other three years when they didn't, that was a, that was a COVID year. Mm-hmm. So and the other two years they had winning, you know, they had winning records. So they've been good for a long time. Never mind. You go back to like, obviously, you know, the Marshall Falk era or they've had a lot of exciting football. Um, and they just built that new stadium. Like, I, I feel like one of the stigmas of that program was like, oh, they play in that decrepit. It was know, falling apart, <laughs> falling apart stadium, really falling apart. <laughs> yeah. Holiday Bowl. I remember I went with uh, the year Michigan State played Wazoo. I, you know, Fox had the game. So I went with my buddy Dan Wike. He's a Michigan State fan. And he used to, I think he covered the Chargers. So we were going through that, like we were going in one part of the stadium and like it was falling apart. Like I, I for safety reasons, I couldn't get over. I was like, wow, this is so much worse than I've even heard. So, so I started going to Padre games like 1998, like after they went to the World Series. And it's funny enough, I covered that USC Iowa Holiday Bowl and that ended up being the last game at Qualcomm. And there, there's no changes or no updates, no renovations to that stadium in, in the 21 years or whatever. I, I went there and I, I just remember uh, people complaining about like TV wires like popping out and stuff. And it's like, like Bruce said, like health and safety um, concerns in that stadium. Somebody told me yesterday. So small world thing. Uh, I'm coaching my daughter's softball team. Uh, yesterday was our picture day and it just happened to fall right when, like I'm driving to picture day right when um, the foul at the end against Creighton, the, the throw, the replay, all that stuff, like to the point where I was like, we're pulling over and parking here until I can see the end of this. But so one of my assistant coaches, is a San Diego state guy, and I get there, I'm like, did you see it? Did you see? It? And he told me this stat that I have not verified. Maybe you know it, that San Diego state has the best combined winning percentage in football and men's basketball over the last decade. Oh yeah, definitely. That's a that's a stat the school like pumps out all the time. I think Ohio State and Oregon are some mix of two and three, but Ohio State's oh, San Diego State's um, up at the top, and it's just crazy to think about. I, my first year there was 2010, 2011, and that year San Diego State made a bowl game for the first time in like 12 years, for the first time since like 1998, and that was the that fall. And that same fall was the first time that the men's basketball team had like ever been ranked in the top 25. And uh, it, just the past 12, 13 years, it's been kind of, they've been, it's been kind of ascending um, ever since. And then, you know, they've had a lot of success. I think obviously the Mountain West has changed and BYU and Utah and TCU left, but they still done a good job of uh, being competitive against Pac-12 schools that like we talked about earlier. And, um, being the best school in the Mountain West. 
can we uh, use this as a springboard before we get to, you know, your, your day job, which is really on the USC beat. I do want to ask this question. So TCU, I feel like similarly uh, in a big city, in a fertile recruiting area was kind of ping ponging around the group of five ish stuff. I know that, you know, there was one point for a minute they were in the big East, but mm-hmm. once they got in the big 12, and obviously Gary Patterson was there. They got rolling. They wanted a big level, and we saw them just play in the national title game. San Diego State, you have a big recruiting base. There's a ton of talent that has come out of there. As we've said, they've been pretty good. They've been very good at times. Um, and now they've got a new stadium. Is And they're going to have – it would be interesting to see how much they can leverage this Final Four run right now, too, off of that. Now, I know Brady Hoke is probably not the sexiest name for people at this point, um, but he's won a lot of games. He's obviously coached in the you know at, the, at a high level, uh, you know, previously at Michigan. Do we think that San Diego State, if now a group of going from group of five, and if they become a power five team, it'd be harder to pull kids out of San Diego if you're going well. Now you're going to be a Pac-12 player regardless. Um, you're in a really good stadium. You're in. A, you can stay home. I don't know if they beat USC or maybe even UCLA for players, but they could beat a lot of probably Pac-12 schools for them. Do we think if they became a Pac-12 school, they could be a consistent top 15 team? Um, Antonio, why don't you go first, and then Stu, I want your thoughts. I think it would be hard just because the talent in Southern California. Uh, there's not enough. You know, we've talked about this before. There's not enough linemen, but like. It was the same question I kind of had in Mississippi. Like, is the state big enough to support two power five schools? And I think like, is would Southern California be big enough talent wise to support three power five schools? Like right in the reach, right within like two hour radius of each other. Um, I think they could like hover around the top 25. Um, I just don't know if they'd be able to consistently get enough talent to be top 15, but I'm kind of curious to see like what coaches would, would they attract and how that changes the view of them say like in, in the coaching carousel say you know, the job opens in the future and um what kind of candidates would they be realistically be able to attract um if they're in the pac-12 or something like that so i think it, it depends on that to me yeah i mean i think a difference there it, I, I get why you brought it up the tcu comparison but like i mean tcu reached the rose bowl as a mountain west team top you know almost like basically as close to the top of the sport as you could get as a group of five team. And they had Gary Patterson, who we, you know, at his peak was one of the best coaches in the country. You know, San Diego state hasn't quite had that level of breakthrough. So you're starting from a point of, instead of like, can this same with Utah, right? They had, they had reached the highest level. Can these programs that were at the top of the group of five translate that into their major conferences? And they did at San Diego state. We're talking like, can they um, realize some of that that some of that unrealized potential maybe while playing against much tougher competition, as Antonio said, in a landscape where I mean I think you're gonna see, and I'd be curious your thoughts on this, Antonio. You cover recruiting very closely. We're gonna start to see Southern a lot of some more Southern California kids go to the Big Ten uh, when USC and UCLA are in it. Yeah, I think that's gonna open the doors. And I think that'll open the doors for Big Ten schools in Southern California too. And high school coaches and college coaches I've talked to think you know it's going to go both ways. Obviously, it's going to open the doors for like Penn State and 
Michigan and Michigan State. Uh, Ohio State obviously is already. Those schools, like Ohio State has been in. Chris Olave, C.J. Stroud, those are mm-hmm. Southern California kids. They've gotten really good players out of here. Michigan has gotten really good players out of California before. Now, the question to me would be, does Illinois – like? I don't yeah, even know. does it trickle down beyond Ohio I'm State? Like, yeah. I'm not sure how many of those schools are going to come in. And, you know, to me, the question I, I think is more interesting is, does San Diego State now, you know, fend off Utah? And do they fend off some of the other schools like, you know, Oregon State? you know, who they might be able to beat mm-hmm. sometime, but like, do they fend off Arizona then for Southern Cal? Cause now if you're in the same league, Arizona has come in, as you know, Antonio really strong in Southern California since Jed fish has got there. And I'm not saying they won't be able to keep that, but I think that that gives them more of a level playing field to battle that. Now I think, I think the points you guys both made, I think are good. I also think, one thing that's kind of overlooked at times, and look, I want to add the best young offensive lineman on the West Coast is that Arizona. He's a Hawaii kid. There are a lot of really good big people in the islands that I think they can recruit and that I think they will, you know, probably do that. I'm not trying, I'm not, you know, putting my flag down and say, okay, Brady Hoke is going to have a top 10 team three years from now or whenever they get, you know, if they, if and when they get in. But I think it'd be interesting. That job will become way more attractive with this, with the facilities upgrade. And so I didn't want to touch on that. But like now you've been out at USC a bunch. They are a fascinating team. They just had a really strong first year. It didn't end, obviously, the way that any USC fans would want. You know, they get smashed in Vegas by Utah in the second half. And then they get they get run up and down by Tulane in in uh, the Cotton Bowl. What does year two look like at USC right now? A lot of spotlight on Alex Grinch and what he'll do differently. Uh, he hasn't given many details, you know, when he, we talked to him last week, but I think that's the main focus. Obviously, Caleb Williams has been trophy winner coming back. The offense, the expectations are obviously high for what they're going to do on that side of the ball with, with Lincoln and Caleb and all the newcomers and Thompson Lyman they brought in and stuff like that. But I think everyone's just kind of curious about what this defense is going to look like this year. And I, I think they've made some good additions on, on the defensive line and at linebacker. But uh, until those games start, and I don't even know how much we're going to learn in the first six weeks because they're playing San Jose State, Nevada, Stanford, Arizona State, Colorado. Uh, that's something we're going to learn more about um, in the second half of the season when, when that schedule really uh, gets hard. Yeah, so it's all about the defense and how much can they improve on defense. And you're, if you go to the athletic, if you care about USC, first of all, you should be following Antonio. Uh, he had on Sunday what I've learned through the second week of pra- uh, practice. And I noticed that a lot of your thoughts had to do with defensive players, um, whether they is, you know, they had a big transfer from Texas A&M and Anthony Lucas, who was a big time recruit, hadn't really played yet. Um, then you mentioned a couple of the transfers. So I'm going to take you back a second. You and I covered the Pac-12 title game in Vegas and we're walking out of the stadium that night, trying to find a 
a rock. I think we ended up <laughs> bumming an Uber off John Canzano. <laughs> you were kind of pessimistic. You were like, I don't, I don't know that they're going to be better next year. Has anything in terms of who they picked up in the portal or what you've seen in practice so far changed your opinion about that? I think I had a lot of concerns about the offensive line after that game. And obviously it's not the team inside of the ball, but they've, I think they've shored that up to where I think they'll be, you know, maybe even better um, this year. Still kind of wait and see on the defense. These are, I think they're, they're obviously not going to have a Tuli Tupelo to like the one standout guy who's like leading the nation in sacks. I don't think they'll have that. My, I'm trying to wonder if they'll be better from like one through five on the defensive line this year with the guys they brought in. Uh, Jack Sullivan's a guy who played a lot at Purdue. Uh, Keon Bars was somebody who was second team all Pac-12 in 2021 uh, at Arizona. Um, and he has some potential as well. And Anthony Lucas is a, a body type at you know, 6'5", 270, or 280. that they haven't really had in my five years covering USC. So I think the size differential and that will help. Um, I still think they need some more depth on the defensive line. Um, I think linebackers should be better. Uh, I think a lot of it comes down to Alex Grinch and if he can solve some of the issues uh, he had last year. I still, I think they could be, you know, the same or maybe better this year, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if they are better, but the schedule, but the record's worse just because the schedule's harder. You have a trip to Notre Dame, trip to Oregon, uh, Utah, Washington on the schedule this year, UCLA. Um, so I, I think 10 and 2, 11 and 1 is probably one of those is the most realistic, in, in my opinion. Do you think, think USC we'll fans, we're quick, Bruce, do you think? So obviously last year felt kind of like a, a free year, right? They were 4 and 8, like anything they, even getting the Pac 12 championship game was was a big deal. But if they, if they, we assume this is Caleb Williams last season, if they don't make the playoff, during his time, would that be a disappointment? I think so, because if they don't make the playoff, it'll probably be because the defense let them down. And yeah. uh, and everyone wanted Alex Grinch, all, of, all the fans wanted Alex Grinch gone after the Cotton Bowl. So um, if that's what lets, lets them down again, they'll be like, why didn't you just move on from him last offseason? So I think it would be considered a disappointment. I think what will be interesting is, to me, the two of the more – you know, the players who I think need to need to we need to keep an eye on this year are actually not transfers. It's Kalen Bullock, who's a safety who they've been excited about, but physically, you know, really needed a lot more development. And Gentry, who like looks like a, you know, really skinny basketball player trying to play middle linebacker. And those guys, I think it's hard to if you don't have the physicality up the middle eventually that's going to get you. And I think that got them in the second half of the season. The other thing that I think is a real telltale sign um, is they got to get better. They got to hold up in the fourth quarter of games in the second half of the year. And it's, you know, I'm glad you said what you said about the schedule, Antonio. Like, I don't know we're going to find out a ton about USC until we get in the second half of the season. And with really to what happens in the fourth quarter of games, because if you look at what happened to USC in the fourth quarter in the second half of the season, they were getting shelled. Mm -hmm. And if that team 
is not physically and mentally ready to stay and fight, then I think that, you know, I think they'll be explosive enough with the skill guys they have and with Caleb and with Lincoln's system to win 10 or 11 games. But to Stu's point, that's going to be a disappointment because they won't be good enough to make a playoff if they're 10 and 2. Or, you know, I don't think you're getting in from the Pac-12 if you're a two-loss team, um, even if you win your league. And I think that's a big, you know, that's a big question mark. The other thing I think is is something that, you know, just to keep in mind, because the way Caleb plays, you know, he's extending plays. He is like, a, you know, he, he got injured in the Utah game, um, the second game. But I think, you know, it's like, he was everything for them Mm -hmm. and you gotta you know you gotta be mindful of that it's like almost like live by the sword die by the sword and your quarterback is extending plays and and plays the way he does now he's sturdy he's a lot bigger than bryce young physically Mm -hmm. but i i do think that um you know i think they're gonna be fascinating to see because the thing i had always pointed out to people last year was yeah they they got you know, Addison and Die and obviously Caleb on offense, they didn't get those guys on defense. They got a bunch of transfers, and there were some transfers from big schools, but those guys were not really big-time players at those schools, you know. And so I think what really has to happen for them to take the next big step is they have got to be able to lure defensive players, and then they got to develop them because, as, you know, in Antonio, I had this conversation a lot. If you look at USC's history – They've had, a, in recent years, certainly under Clay Helton, they had a lot of four- and five-star guys. They've just been over-recruited. There's so many guys who had no business being five-star guys, if you look at what they really were. Um, and they have some five-star guys now on the defensive side of the ball who are like, wait, that guy was a five-star because it's not showing up you know, on the field. And I don't know if it's an issue of how do you develop and make the best end of it, but like to me... It's really, you know, it's, it goes back to something we've talked a lot about, which is the complementary football and how you practice it and how you, how you manage it. And, um, you know, that's the part that I think is a big TBD. And if I was a USC fan, I'd be like, okay, I'm encouraged by the improvement. You've definitely made it USC relevant again and exciting. But that's the thing that's going to separate it, whether it can be a, a playoff t- a national title contender or not. And, and I think... You know, on a couple of those points, like I think the defensive depth, like we, like Bruce talks about body blows all the time. And you look at that schedule, you have Utah and Notre Dame back-to-back weeks. Um, I mean, that's how they ended the season last year, and they didn't have Andrew Voorhees in, in, the, in the title game and, and some other guys. So their defensive depth is going to be tested, and the depth overall is going to be tested you know, midway through the season. And um, they'll still have Washington and Oregon and UCLA after those games and uh, the recruiting stuff is, is fascinating because it's like, how are you going to recruit these defensive players when nobody knows if, you know, how long Alex Grinch will be here and his reputation isn't the best right now. So how are you going to sell the defensive players uh, play for me? Um, We'll, we'll get you developed and we'll have a, a great defense this year. And, um, They've done well in the transfer portal, though. I think this year's group is of defensive players and defensive additions is better than last year. It's guys, like, like Bruce said, 
last year they got Shane Lee and some guys, but like Shane Lee wasn't playing at Alabama. You know, they've got Keon Bars, who was a starter at Arizona, and Jack Sullivan, who was a starter at Purdue, and um, Mason Cobb, who was a starter at Oklahoma State. So I, I think this year's group of transfer additions is better. Um, we'll see how much that really improves the defense, though. Real quick, so Antonio doesn't just cover USC. He covers recruiting, and in particular Southern California recruiting, Pac-12 recruiting. Um, a lot of our writers are recruiting confidentials. Everybody loves them, Marty. We give anonymity, talk to six or seven coaches, and ask them a bunch of questions. And so you did this Pac-12 one. And the very first question was to two coaches. These are assistants, recruiting staffers. Which Pac-12 recruiting class impressed you the most in the 2023 cycle? Coach two, none. <laughs> Being in my former conference, looking at our classes, and looking at the classes in the SEC Big Ten, it's not close as far as the pedigree of football players that schools are able to bring in. The West is not enough anymore. You won't win with just players from the West. Um, now, the others did mention a specific school, but, I mean, did when, you, when he said that, did that kind of – raise your eyebrows at all in terms of a coach inside the Pac-12 just basically taking a whole shot at Pac-12 recruiting. Yeah, I don't agree with it, but it did uh, it did raise my eyebrows. I think Oregon had a really good class. Um, USC had some good pieces. Um, but it, obviously, I, I do tend to agree with him in the regard that you can't really win with just West Coast, with only West Coast kids anymore. If you look at USC's national title teams from like 03 and 04, the whole starting offensive defensive lines are kids from California. I don't know if you could field a, a team like that anymore and compete for a national title. And you see teams like Utah who go to Texas a bunch for for kids, and uh, you see Southern, you see USC a bit more going to Texas for you know the best defensive line recruit. Uh, they got this year and Oregon's a pretty national uh, brand. So I think um, that's one aspect I do agree with that you can't win just solely based off West Coast. You're going to have to recruit nationally if you want to win. And if you're a Pac-12 school now. All right. Uh, we encourage you, like Stu said, if you're a USC fan, you already should be following Antonio. Um, but also if you were just a big fan of West Coast recruiting, I would encourage you to follow Antonio. The story that we're talking about inside Pac-12 recruiting, the 2023 signees to watch, best NIL setup, and the subject we cannot get enough of, Dion's impact. Uh, Antonio, thanks for joining us on the Audible today. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. 
Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Thanks to Antonio for coming on. It's been a couple weeks, Bruce, on the emails. We got some great ones this week. And, of course, dear listeners, you can always send your questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com. And this first one, I know you have an opinion about. It's from Brian. He says, Stu and Bruce, when discussing the future of the playoff, all the talk centered on the number of teams or whether or not expanding is good for the sport. But why does nobody talk about reforming the makeup of the committee itself and the actual boldface selection process of the teams? How are ADs who have full-time, high-profile jobs the most qualified people to pick the field? What about the flawed metrics the committee does or does not use every year? Does... What about the flawed metrics the committee does or does not use? Each year, the difference between teams four and five is usually fairly clear for those who follow the sport closely, but the gap between 12 and 13 or 10 and 15 for that matter is not nearly as obvious. It's a great point. When this thing expands, the selection committee is going to have a lot more, arguably a lot more uh, power and responsibility because they're picking more than four teams. Yeah, I think the tricky part of this is who are you going to get who's A, qualified, B, who's committed. Um, I know this is this like the makeup of the committee has come up a lot internally. I know like with my group at Fox Sports where a few of the people bring up like how many of these people actually were like coaches or played high level football. And it's usually not a huge number. Like there's a handful of people who have the experience, maybe there's an AD who started out as a GA or played played college football years and years ago. But I think it comes back to who's going to – it is a massive time commitment in to be in those discussions. Never mind, you know, people I, – I don't know how much you get past and go, okay, this person has kind of an allegiance to this school. Do we really buy that there's no biases that you check your – I know they do the symbolic, put your hat at the door, but – I don't, you know, you're never going to please everybody on who you have on there. I know like every year, every cycle, there's either a former sports writer or somebody who's like probably didn't have like extensive in the building football, college football experience. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't like have like, let's say, and this is not, you know, the, I'm thinking about like retired football coaches. I don't know how many of the retired football coaches, you know, depending on what stage of their lives are, um, you know, they're going to have their own biases too. And so it's just, it's just a really hard thing. It's a hard formula to, to, to solve. I think that it doesn't concern me at all, whether or not the person played football. I mean, you don't need to have played football to evaluate football teams. In fact, I would like to see, 
the one thing I would like to see is an analytics person, and I don't have an exact name for you, a Bill Connolly type who measure, you know, kind of balances this out, but he makes an excellent point about we have seen ADs in this thing. First of all, whose teams are in consideration. Ward Manuel, the Michigan AD, is on there right now. Um, Jen Cohen, the Washington AD, joins it this year. I'm sure she would, would like Washington to be part of the playoff discussion next year. We've also had coaches who had coaching searches. You know, they had to fire a coach and hire a new coach like the last week in the week of the season, right as they're getting into the most important, you know, the, really the only one, frankly, that matters. Uh, I'm looking at the makeup for next year. There's a lot of new names here. Chris Alt was a great coach at Nevada. Nobody's going to argue about that. Jim Grove, uh, great uh, retired coach. Those are the only retired coaches, I think, now. And you mentioned there's always a media person. I spent many weeks and many years in press boxes. It's Kelly Whiteside, longtime college football writer for USA Today, who is now out of the business. But uh, Every, every week you get so it's you know, furious with Boo Corrigan or Gary Barta, whoever was the selection committee chair that week. And that was really just talking about the top four. I mean, we're going to be talking, uh, you know, six at large teams, uh, which means how many teams will be in the mix for the, you'll probably be paying attention to the whole top 20. Uh, you know, if they're still doing that ridiculous Tuesday show every week. Well, two things on that. So first, when you mentioned the analytics, they, there used to be some version of an analytics component because there was those math formulas that they were using with the BCS. Remember those days? Yes. Um, I'm not a fan of that at all. Two, um, when you said the show, as we know, I hate that show. <laughs> like it's, and I think Reese Davis is really good, but that shows that shows terrible because like I feel like they're trying to drum up controversy of stuff that, you know, it's like you're basically kicking the hornet's nest. And also the person who goes on there, like as we've talked about, like the PR aspect of of the CFP is atrocious and that is mismanaged. So it comes out, they look bad for how they message it. You know, they they create their own problems and I get why they do it because ESPN's paying a fortune and they want TV ratings to tie into it, but that's not going to help. Right. I mean, you know, fire your PR people or whatever, get, get people who aren't morons or who are actually invested in it to manage it better. And then maybe your message won't. And the person who's the CFP chairman, you know, they're not going to be stuck, you know, dragging out this thing like the way it does, but I don't think that's going to be remedied by whether it's a more, or more, more, more um, untangled committee, or more "quote unquote" qualified committee that they put on. I, I don't think you solve it that way. When I said analytics component, I didn't mean like they should have a. Uh, they do because this is the thing. They do have advanced they use in that room. I would just like somebody who kind of speaks for that community. In fact, there's a great example of that in, in the basketball process this year, like. A, pay attention to Ken Palm and that stuff, but it doesn't really drive the discussion. Do you know who the number one team on Ken Palm is this year? I have no idea. UConn. UConn, who was a four seed and who is clearly looks a lot better than a four seed. I just feel like if they had had a, a Ken Palm or somebody like that on that basketball committee, they might not have been a four seed. Analytics um, work better in, in, I think, in other sports than they do in football or in college football because it's a small sample size. And you're all over the place in who you play. Um, 
I'm not saying analytics has no value in college football. I wouldn't want it in determining playing a big role in determining who the the playoff teams are going to be. My yeah, and, and the other thing with those analytics in college football is they have a preseason component, and it just takes to, to almost till the end of the season to phase it out. So um, I wouldn't want necessarily want that to be to play a role in in selecting the teams. But I think at the very least, just to to, to, to give them a final answer. I hope they don't just like, okay, uh, we're just going to keep doing it exactly. Like there should be a, an actual hard discussion about, hey, this committee is going to have a lot more responsibility now. Should we maybe take another look at how we want to do it instead of just basically getting right ahead with the way it is now? Russell B. in Austin, Texas, you know him as the Michigan fan who uh, enjoyed some Zingerman's on me. Howdy from Texas. A lot of people are posting tongue-in-cheek that because Ryan Day has lost to Michigan two years in a row, he's about to be fired. My question is, what would it actually take for him to be fired? Could just losing to Michigan a few times in a row really do it? I think for the first time in a long time, Michigan will be favored in the big game this year. I don't know about that. I I wouldn't Look, it wouldn't surprise me. This is Jim Harbaugh's most talented team he's had since he's been there, and the game is in Ann Arbor, and they won two in a row. I, I think this is preposterous, the, and I'm not taking issue with Russell, but just like Ryan Day is 45 and six as a head coach, and he's 31 and two in the Big Ten. I get it. He's lost two games, and they were, his team got mauled by Michigan. Those are the two losses. His worst season in four full years as a head coach, they finished sixth. If Ohio State were to fire him, even if he went, even if they lost 40 to nothing this year to Michigan, and they were 10 and two and they, you know, finished ninth. The idea that they would fire him is insane. Now I'm not saying, and I don't think there's any credibility to it. I'm sure there's, there's message board folks who are very chafed about that. They lost and they're embarrassed because it's unthinkable, you know, urban one, seven and oh, right now. I, I just, I don't, what would it take for him to lose? I think it would take, what were to lose his job? I think it would take something un, uh, unseemly to happen around. It would take some eight and four seasons. Like I, they're not going to fire him for going eleven and one, but losing to Michigan. Now, what will be interesting is in that expanded playoff. I mean, if you're Ohio State, you're there's going to be expectation that you make it every year and that you win game, not necessarily win the national championship, but that you you win games in advance in that thing. Um, that that would be a double-edged sword if they are losing to Michigan and like getting in there and losing their first round game. But I got to tell you, as long as Ohio state keeps recruiting at the level they're recruiting, I don't, I don't see that happening. I think let's use this factor. You take out the Luke fickle year when, when Trestle got forced out and fickle took over and they went six and seven. If you go back, you know how many years in a row, Ohio state probably would have made the playoff with a 12 team playoff. I mean, basically going back to mid-Trestle, I think. Yeah, 2000, 2004, they finished 20th. 2004. Otherwise, and at one point they were in the, you know, they were seventh, you know, but like you have to take out the Luke Fickle year. Now, Urban had a year where they finished 12th, but that's because they lost the Orange Bowl. They pro- they would have been a playoff team. They were they finished 12-2. and two. Yeah. And that's so, how... There every year they'd be in the playoff. So um, I think what we might start seeing in the 12 team playoff is if a program like that, or let's say even um, 
I don't know, Oklahoma, LSU, just like in the NFL, like making the playoff is going to be seen as a deal breaker. And if you miss the playoff, I would say even two years in a row, you might get fired, right? But that means you're finishing the regular season outside the top, most likely outside the top 12. Yeah, also, and I, again, I don't, I'm not saying this should, like, yeah, I, I just going back on the Ryan Day stuff again, and I know lots of coaches, you know, do really good things. Like, Ryan Day has actually been like a leader in some really important mental health issues. Like, he's gone out and spoke and handled it. Like, he's definitely been somebody Ohio State should be very proud of that he's in the leadership spot. So, I get it. They lost to Michigan two years in a row. I'm sure, nobody in Columbus or nobody Ohio State fan is just like, and I'm not pushing back on Russell because I know he asked the question. I just think it is – I think it's so ridiculous that it – Harbaugh it's... lost to Ohio State five years in a row and didn't get fired. So, um, granted, there – you know. The issue was there that they were not winning at the level before when right. he was there against Ohio State, you know. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This one, no name, just Shadow of Death Valley. Hey, Stu and Bruce, in the most recent episode, you both talked about covering the sport for multiple decades, and Bruce alluded to knowing Tom Herman since he was a GA at Texas. Given your collective tenure, are there particular coaches you have known and covered whose evolution and career trajectories stand out in your mind? Watching these guys rise from players or GAs to head coaches of prominent programs must make for fascinating theater as you cover the sport. Yeah, one of the more, more prominent ones for me is like I remember going to Texas Tech and having a student worker, you know, kind of find leech for me in the building. And as we were walking, I was talking to this guy, you know, the whole way about his background and everything. And that was Lincoln Riley, you know, and been, you know, kept up with him, obviously, when when they went, a bunch of those guys ended up going to East Carolina, um, saw him. That's actually the only time I've ever been to Greenville. Um, so it's been not interesting, although not shocking to see him ascend because everybody there knew how smart he was. Um, there's a lot of other guys you just, I mean, just because I've covered it for a long time. I'm going to guess your answer on this because it's your alma mater that you probably covered Pat Fitzgerald. And then um, is that the, is that your answer? Yeah, I covered Pat Fitzgerald as a player in the mid '90s. So, and obviously was at school with him at the same time. So, I mean, there's nobody I've, I've watched on a s relatively small campus. I'm curious, like, what was Pat Fitzgerald's? Was he looked at as like? 
because your campus was different than a lot of other Big Ten campuses. Yeah, but the player, the football program players were still pretty like they spent you know all day at the football building, and the stadium was a mile from campus, so it wasn't like I was walking a clock. Now, also, as great as he was, really the bigger star at the time was Darnell Autry, their running back, who uh, who was a Heisman finalist, and one summer. Uh, our fraternity was being renovated. So we were in another, the one summer I stayed at school, fraternity was being renovated. So we were in like this temporary house that was also available to other students. And Darnell Autry was living in the house at the time. Um, but mostly I don't, I don't think I would like run into Pat Fitzgerald walking around campus, but I can tell you this, the, the guy you see now is exactly who he was personality wise as a player. I, uh, one of my trips to Northwestern and he had probably been the head coach for like five years. I remember sitting with him and asking him cause he was so good in college and it kind of boggled my mind that he couldn't have like lasted at least a few years in the NFL. Yeah. As we were talking about like that and he, it was interesting cause he had such an awareness of, yeah, I don't have the change of direction, the, the, the agility to play at that level and just to see how big and him knowing the difference between that and him seemingly. And again, this is how what I remember him saying was like, he seemed to be very at peace with like how it played out. You know, I think he would, you know, obviously he's a Chicago guy through and through um, and the connections there in the NFL, I think were, um, you know, it was just, it was just interesting to hear. Cause you know, you hear of so many guys who are like, they're going down with their boots on kind of thing and they're not giving up on it. And I'm not saying he gave up on it, but he just kind of was like, seemed to be very, uh, just, and maybe that's w- what's made him a good coach is he had the awareness to go, okay, I know what's, what's real and what's, you know, I, he obviously can rest on winning, you know, two butt kisses. I think he won two butt kisses, right? He did. Yeah. He, he lasted one, like he didn't even make it to training camp. I think he went to, to mini camp with the um, Cowboys and that was it. And I, I was pretty baffled too. Like, how can you be, that accomplished a college football player and the NFL has no interest in you, but he's, he's, he has, he's pretty good sense of humor about how he just wasn't a great athlete. He just, you know, was a really instinct. Those were the days there. I don't know that there are a lot of players like that these days, right? Like the just kind of like tough nosed instinctual middle linebacker who tackles everybody who, who's not an NFL player. A couple others that come to mind for me, um, covered i mean these aren't college coaches covered ken dorsey as a as a college player obviously now um probably on the cusp of being an nfl head coach Uh, i've known lane kiffin since he was an assistant at usc probably um oh oh four ish probably when they were winning starting to win national titles there same same with sark actually they were they were co-ocs at the time i'm looking down the list here of college head coaches to see if there's anybody else quite like that what about you um yeah there's a bunch of guys that just you remembered it like i remember being at this is a uh probably a maybe a little off the spotlight but like i remember going to illinois and talking to nate shieldhouse and now nate shieldhouse is yep. the off coordinator at iowa state and he's fast rising and i know from like i know he's was in the mix for a head coaching job at one point and i remember talking to an ad who was really impressed with him you know and it's like he's not you know, like Jerry Neuheisel is somebody who's going to be a head coach before too long. And, um, you know, it's funny because from conversations with Chip Kelly over, you know, I know three of the guys he's especially high on and 
is one is Cody Whitfield, you know, who's now on his staff. The other one is Connor McQueen, who I can I remember sitting in the quarterback room when Johnny Manziel was there, and Connor was, you know, was the walk on who didn't look like he was a SEC football player who was super smart. And I'm like, oh yeah, this guy if he wants to be a big time coach someday, I'm sure he's going to be because he can relate to people and he's really smart. And so it's been fun to watch people's careers kind of ascend like that. And you can see it from quarterbacks whether they were. You know, because I think there's a leadership component. There's an accountability component, you know, that's already in there. Um, but, yeah, there's just a there's just a bunch of guys. I mean, certainly when I was around, all the time I was around Texas Tech, a lot of those guys, not just the quarterback guys, you know, um, you just see – you can see – I think they take advantage of the football program that they're in. They know the system that they're in, and then they network really well. So – I mean, that's been a really cool thing about just kind of covering the coaching beat. You see these people um, go. Um, it's interesting because that the the question that we just got, you know, kind of ties to Tom Herman and his GA days. I may, I'm sure I've told this story before. So the reason why, that was my first coach's convention. It was in California. And I was there to do a story on how to break into the coaching business. And I ended up going drinking with a bunch of GAs. And the guy I ended up doing the story with was a GA for, for Oklahoma State under Bob Simmons, Brian Yager, who became a buddy of mine. Um, and he's no longer in coaching. But, you know, it was around a lot of drinking. We had a good time. And that question, I think, tees up to our last question. And that is from Adam in Derby, Connecticut. Hey, Bruce and Stu, I took a tour of Jerry World, AT&T Stadium. Wait, wait, wait. Before you do that, Bruce, mm -hmm. I figured you were going to mention Manny Diaz. Do you want to mention him? Um, yeah, if you want to ask me about it, because I mean, I worked with Manny Diaz. Yeah, I'm just gonna, so this is what I'm gonna say. So maybe take out the drinking part. Um, there, I'm surprised you there's somebody you, that I know you've known for a long time. I'm surprised you haven't mentioned them because you've known them since before they were actually in coaching. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so um, when I started at ESPN, Manny Diaz started almost the exact same time, and he had just come from Florida State where he was a student. And was really sharp. And, you know, back in those days at ESPN in Bristol, you just had like a really commonality with people because you were probably a huge sports fanatic. And he was. And Manny was on the fast track as a producer. Um, but he obviously had a dream that a, a, probably a handful of people did to work in football. But he really pursued it. And, you know, thanks to Chuck Amato and to Sterling Sharp, um, who had worked at ESPN at the time, Sterling did. Um, he got a, his foot in the door. When I say foot in the door, it was like he basically had another job and was doing working in the recruiting office for nothing. And, you know, he had a young family. And so it's been really cool to see Manny's career take off the way it has. Um, and, you know, like, it just, I think in some ways, like, you know, working at ESPN was kind of the dream job for a lot of people. And I think, I'm sure he, you know, I don't know. I'd be curious what he thinks he would have done if he just stayed in the TV. But I think the the cool part was he took a big chance bet on himself because he didn't want to wonder what if. And I think those are the things that are like really good, you know, lessons to to take a chance because you don't want to want you don't want to ever have the I wish I had done that when I had the chance because I mean at the time feel like he was already married and i think he maybe at one point when he moved back to tallahassee his wife might have been pregnant so it was like that was you know it's one thing to do it when you're on your own i mean you know you can work a second job because you don't have a family or an, a t entanglements or anything like that 
he really made it work. So it's been, it's been awesome to see him kind of get to where he got. You All right. Fly. So, yeah. So um, just to tie into the, this question, that question was the, the Tom Herman piece. I got to meet Tom when I was at a coach's convention um, it was my first convention. And I was working on a story for ESPN magazine about how to break into the business as a coach. And so I went drinking with a bunch of GAs and the GA I did the story on ultimately was a GA for Oklahoma state, Brian Yager, um, who became a buddy and stayed in coaching for a while and then ended up leaving the business. But I think that's a good, the subject of alcohol, I think is a good transition to this one from Adam in Derby, Connecticut. Hey, Bruce and Stu, I recently took a tour of Jerry World's AT&T Stadium in Texas, and the tour guide brought us into the press box. He told us that journalists have access to unlimited food and beverages, including alcohol. I knew journalists got free food, but I was shocked to hear about unlimited alcohol. Is this true? If so, do some journalists go overboard? There must be a crazy story or two you can share on the pod without naming names. St do I have to ask you, what's the most drunk you've ever seen Ari Wasserman in a press box? <laughs> why, why is it always Ari as the example? Um, Adam, I think your tour guide uh, had bad information. I mean, maybe he's thinking of the uh, suites, like the luxury suite holders. I've never, ever been in a press box with unlimited alcohol. Um, I have been in a few maybe like on actual college campuses where once everybody was done filing their stories, Oh, Hey, look, there's a cooler of beer in the back. I don't think I've like on that. I never mind the college campus. I've been definitely been in press boxes where after the game and maybe the, after the people come back into the press box to work on their stories, there have been some folks who have like had a couple of cases of beer and maybe they, will ask anybody if they want to want a beer or two. I've never, I'm not sure if I can remember seeing anybody with like open bar where there's like hard liquor. In no, there. and definitely not during the, wait, so you're saying you saw people like writers brought their own cases of beer or the team. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I'm saying where um, maybe media relations staff has had, um, you know, has had a bunch of beer and it's available and they'll ask somebody, do you, you know, like, do you want a beer or something? Yes. I, that's not like a college campuses thing. Like I've seen that at, at, you know, like press boxes I've been in. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I met in a press box, but I was thinking it was in a college stadium, but maybe, maybe it was a pro stadium, but you're right. It was the SID who had them. And, but no, I've, have you ever, has anybody, have you ever been in a press box where somebody showed up intoxicated? I don't think so. I don't, you know, I'm not like I've been in, you know, had a conversation with every person in there. Like I've definitely been in press boxes where there are lots of random people in there who may not be cut writing off the game. And who knows? Like I've been in a couple of state, a couple of stadiums where there have been people who, you know, they're not technically sports writers or media. They may just be there because that's where they're, somebody's putting them in there. And you can hear like, you know, it's like no cheering in the press box. You may get some of that from, from them. So I can't, I couldn't tell you if like they were tailgating beforehand or, but it's not like somebody is coming around and, and like you're ready for another, you know, like that I've not seen, but. I should also just say that 
Again, this tour guide really did a good job of glamming it up here. Yes, journalists get free food. 98% of the time, that free food is not like the, the food they're serving in the luxury suites or gourmet food by any means. The most times I feel like people will go into, the, you know, like will get their own food and they'll go buy it at somewhere else in the stadium. Mm, I do that, but I don't, I don't think, I mean, most people just sit and eat the best press box food you can remember having. It would, it would have been at a pro stadium for sure. Um, do you have a ready answer for that? I kind of like, I feel like I, and this is from doing sideline and some big 12 games. I kind of feel like both TCU and Oklahoma state, would have pretty good food. It's definitely not what Tim served at USC. I know that. Um, <laughs> but um, like, just to give the re- listeners a window. And so I would say most your, your standard. Well, first of all, in the SEC, it's almost always barbecue. In fact, SEC and like the Texas Big 12 schools, it's almost always barbecue, but it's not Andy Staples barbecue. Uh, let's see other other common ones like lasagna. Um, like hamburgers that look like they've been sitting in that tray for a couple days by then. Um, cold cuts. Ohio State has a unique one. I, I don't know if they still have it. At one point, they had a frosty machine in there because hmm. of the Wendy's tie-in. And then I, I not, feel like, yeah, I have not been in like Ohio State's press box very often because we're at the games, but we're not up there. You know, like I'm at the games, but I'm not like the only places I felt like I would try to make a point to go for some reason. Like I said, TCU and Oklahoma State, I thought kind of stood out as like, all right, the food is worth me coming up here for a little bit before the game. I don't know. Like their food, I thought was better than what we usually were getting off the TV truck for what the crew was getting. So now we sound like total complainers. Like, yes, there is free food. Cut this segment. uh, No, we're not going to cut the segment. I realize having been to the NCAA tournament as a fan the other week, I realized that stadium food is very expensive. And so free food would be very appealing to some people. But let's this. I'm just saying this question from the or this this description that the tour guide at Jerry World gave is like we're basically sitting in there eating filet mignon and and drinking, you know, the finest liquor while watching a football game. I just want to clear up that if anybody has that a perception that is that is not it okay as always send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com and we will see you next time